This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Hey everybody, Jeremy Myers here. Hey, got a little bonus episode for you here. I was uh, writing a, b- a blog post for today and putting a video. I, I recorded this video, oh, it was last August sometime, and then I completely forgot about it. And then uh, just uh, because of the publication of my new book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, I remembered that I had recorded this video and this podcast episode way back in August, and so I decided to put it up this week. And so it's sort of a bit of a bonus episode for you. <laughs> Uh, or, or two or three, really. It's it's about an hour long. So uh, buckle your seatbelts or sit down uh, for the long haul here. But uh, there's some really good information in here, which I think is super helpful for pretty much understanding everything. But I, I say all this in the hour-long episode. So it's already long enough. I'm not going to say anything more. I'm just going to get out of my way and turn it over to a recording I made for you uh, last August. Okay, here you go. Hey guys, Jeremy Myers here. Listen, uh, I want to share with you in the next half an hour, 40 minutes or so, as quickly as I possibly can, something that I've sort of come to think about as a theory of everything. Now, I got to be honest, this theory of everything did not actually originate with me. Um, I have gleaned bits and pieces of this from lots of reading, writing, and studying over the last several years or so. People like Rene Girard have been uh, helpful for me in this regard, and uh, lots of other people similar to him. If you've never heard of him, that's okay. He's a French sociologist, historian, literature professor, and uh, he noticed some themes that popped up in a lot of the books that he was teaching to his French students, and so uh, he wrote about that, wrote a book, and uh, has, has developed a theory called mimetic theory. And A lot of people haven't heard of mimetic theory because it is a very difficult theory to understand. The books, most of the books written on this topic are quite difficult, lots of difficult terminology and words. And so I have taken the theory for myself, adopted it in how I understand scripture and theology and relationships and a whole bunch of other things, changed it, tweaked it a teeny tiny bit, made hopefully to make it more accessible to the average person like me. (laughs) Uh, so if you're familiar with Rene Girard's mimetic theory, then a lot of what I share with you here will probably be familiar to you. To you. If not, boy, hold on to your seats. You're about to discover something, which again, is the theory of everything. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that, theory of everything. Look, this is going to help you. I use it in my study, my scripture study all the time. I talk about it in my podcasts, uh, little bits and pieces of what I'm going to share with you. I... Uh, use this when I try to work on my relationships with my wife and my three daughters. I use it at work with the co-workers that I work with and then also with the people I work with. Um, I see it in politics. Right now we're in this crazy presidential campaign between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and I see this theory of everything working its way out there in almost daily interactions between the two of them. I see it in economics, I see it in politics, I see it, it's just all over the place in scripture as well, as well as life. And so that's why understanding this theory is so important, because 
it's going to help you. It's going to help you understand yourself, what's going on inside your head, why you think the way you think, why you like what you like. It's going to help you understand your coworkers and your neighbors, uh, your, your spouse, your children, your parents even. It's, uh, it helps you understand economic systems. And uh, again, it's the theory of everything. Okay, so uh, I'm excited to share it with you. I hope that by what I share with you, it will broaden your understanding of society, of civilization, of history, of politics, economics. Most importantly, though, it will broaden your understanding of what is revealed to us in Jesus Christ, especially Jesus Christ crucified. Uh, the, the primary, maybe one of the primary revelations that Jesus gave to us on the cross through his crucifixion is this theory of everything uh, that I'm going to share with you today. It's helped me immensely in my own study and teaching of Scripture. Sort of to help it make it easy for you, this theory of everything I have um, centered around five key words, okay? There's five words that I want you to think about when you think about the theory of everything. I don't have notes or anything that's going to go on the screen, so you just have to take your notes for yourself. Uh, remember them. Uh, or if you're listening to the podcast, remember it that way as well. One Verse Podcast or the Theology.fm podcast. Okay, the first word in this theory of everything is imitation. Uh, imitation is, well, you're familiar with imitation. Uh, you probably have heard someone say, you know, monkey see, monkey do. And that's true for monkeys. You go to a zoo, you're going to see them. A lot of the monkeys will try to imitate you. But the thing is, it's not only monkeys who imitate. We humans are also very imitative creatures. We are imitative beings. And there's nothing wrong with this. God made us to be, to be imitators. Um, you, you look at just a, even a newborn baby. One of the first things a newborn baby is going to do is start to imitate, or at least learn through imitation. They're going to look around. Their ears are working. Their eyes are working. Okay, Their, their five senses are working. And they are using these senses to gather uh, information about their surrounding and eventually, over the course of time, begin to imitate what they see and what they hear. Uh, this is how infants, for example, learn language. Uh, the reason I learned English rather than, say, Spanish or Mandarin or whatever is because I grew up in an English-speaking family, and my parents, my siblings, all spoke English. The people they surrounded me with spoke English. Uh, their sounds came in through my ears, and I eventually learned to speak English. It's how uh, infants learn to walk. It's how we learn to use utensils. Uh, yes, practice is involved, of course, but we, we practice doing what we see, what we imitate, what we want to imitate others doing. Okay, so we're imitative creatures. And that's okay. Uh, again, it's a good thing to imitate. We, we see this taught all over the place in the Bible. Uh, for example, in my One Verse podcast, I have been working my way at this point through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We're going to do 4 as well, chapter 4, before we move on elsewhere into the Bible. But in Genesis 1, if you ever get a chance to study it, or just listen to my podcast if you want as well, the One Verse podcast, uh, we see in Genesis 1 that there are seven key activities of God in Genesis chapter 1. And what's interesting about this is after God creates Adam and Eve, in Genesis 1, 26, he, he sort of brings them together, and then we also see this in chapter 2, by the way, the second creation account. But he, he comes and he says to them, hey, here's the seven things that I've done. You are my image of God on earth. You're my mirror image. I want you to reflect me. 
And here's how you're going to do that. You are going to do the things that I do. I want you, God says, to imitate me. All right? And so they do. And it's interesting going forward. Uh, we see this imitation work its way out uh, in the temptation in Genesis chapter 3. Eve imitates the serpent a little bit. And then after Eve eats from the fruit, Adam imitates her in eating from the fruit as well. Okay? And so on and so forth. Uh, so this is imitation. In fact, there in, in these three opening chapters of Genesis, we see good imitation and bad imitation. We see that God wants us to imitate him. These seven key activities, we're still supposed to be doing that today as the, his image bearers on earth. But there's also this bad imitation, this one area, this one thing that is off limits, that God says, do not limit or, or imitate me in this way which ultimately is the tree of knowledge of the good and evil. And uh, God says, this wisdom, this area of knowledge is reserved for myself alone. Don't go for it. Don't try to get it. And I explain why in my podcast, One Verse Podcast. Uh, eventually, those podcasts will also be made into books, which you can buy on Amazon. But um, the, the, God says, imitate me in these seven ways, but not in this one way about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I reserve that for myself. Moving on, you know, we could, we could look at imitation all over the place again in, in the Old Testament, but moving even into the New Testament, we see Jesus, he imitates God. He, Jesus says, I only do what I, I uh, see my Father doing. Okay, and we're supposed to follow that example. Imitate God, imitate Jesus in imitating God. Paul then later says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. All right, so, so there's good imitation, and we are supposed to imitate God, imitate other godly examples, and then there's bad imitation. That's when we imitate uh, God or imitate others in ways that we should not, okay? So this is a very scriptural truth. Now, the interesting thing about imitation is that psychologists, psychiatrists, especially in recent decades, have been doing a lot of studies on the brain, and they have come to see that uh, there's something in our brain called mere neurons, all right? Uh, these mirror neurons are, are fascinating because they uh, fire. You know how your brain works. Maybe you don't. Uh, I don't know how our brain works either. But from the little bit I've read, a little bit I've heard, okay, when you do an action, an activity, even me speaking like this, uh, your neurons are firing like crazy in your head to uh, help you do whatever it is that you're trying to do. Your, your neurons are firing. Here's the thing. Scientists have discovered that when you observe, when you watch someone doing something, whatever it is, you know, you're watching me on this video, or uh, if you're listening, you know, on audio, then obviously you're not. So let's, let's say you're watching someone mow their lawn. Uh, you're, when you watch someone mow their lawn, certain regions of the brain, the neurons in those regions, fire. Okay, that makes sense. Your brain is doing something. It's observing someone mowing the lawn. But scientists, psychiatrists, people who do studies on the brain have realized, have come to see that when you yourself mow the lawn, guess what? Those same exact regions of the brain are firing. So what they've come to see is that whether you're doing an activity or simply observing somebody else doing an activity, the same neurons in your brain are firing. Now, isn't that surprising? Sort of makes sense again, what we see all over the place in Scripture, even what we know from experience. Look, if you're watching certain types of behavior or activity on TV, 
or in a video game, or it's just something you fill your mind with in your life with watching certain people do certain things, then your mere neurons are firing and you are carrying out those same activities in your brain as if you were doing them yourself. Sort of makes you pause and think, boy, what am I letting enter into my brain <laughs> through my eyes, through my observation? Okay, so that's imitation. And uh, we see it all over the place in science and scripture and so on. Okay, that's the first word. Uh, imitation. We are imitative creatures, imitative beings. God made us this way. Sometimes we use our imitative abilities for wrong reasons to imitate wrong objects, wrong models. That's imitation. The second word I want you to uh, take note of is desire. Okay? The truth is that imitation leads to desire. When you see someone doing something or having something or owning something, then typically you desire it as well. You desire what you see they desire. In fact, you imitate their desire. Uh, again, we see this all over the place in society and culture, history. Uh, you are watching TV and you see someone on TV who has a certain car or a certain dress or a certain hairstyle or a uh, certain position, power, money, fame, glory, whatever it might be. And you see what they have. And because of imitation, you desire to have what they have as well. This is desire. Also, this isn't necessarily bad. Again, back to Genesis. God has these seven key activities, which he reveals to us there. What he performed in creation also, by the way, what we see God performing throughout scripture and throughout history. And God wants us to imitate him, and he does that by saying, desire to do these things. I want you to desire to do these things. So that's okay. But the, the thing is, is there's also bad forms of desire. Uh, bad things that we imitate to desire. And scripture often refers to this as coveting. Uh, coveting is a bad form of desire. It's desiring that which we should not desire. So again, in Genesis, Genesis 3, Eve saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eyes, that it was desirable to make one wise. Okay, She desired what God had, the wisdom, the, the, the knowledge of good and evil. She desired that, right? and, and uh, she wanted it for herself. Uh, we could talk about uh, two men who desire the same woman. We could talk about people who desire the same car or the same shirt or the same uh, position on a sports team or the same political office or the same uh, position at work or the same office or whatever it is, okay? So desire, uh, we, we, we see things and we desire. Now, here's the interesting thing about desire. We don't really know that our desires are a good desire until other people desire what we desire. Hope that's not too confusing. We, our desires, know that what we are desiring is desirable because we see other people desiring the same thing. In other words, desire knows that the object of its desire is good because other people are imitating, going back to imitation, imitating that desire. And this feeds everything. How do you know that a certain man, how do you know that a certain woman is pretty? Well, you look at her and you think, well, I, that's sort of pretty. And then you see that other people think she's, other men think she's pretty as well. And maybe even other women 
thinks she's pretty, okay? The desire, the 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 feeling that she is pretty uh, makes you realize that your feeling, your desire for her is correct. Now, this happens in stores and it happens in, I was, you know, you could talk about, um, I, I interviewed Adam Erickson recently from the Raven Foundation about Rene Girard and mimetic theory. And he points out uh, that he was in a shoe store recently and he went up there and he saw this shoe store sitting there on the rack and he picked up the shoe and he inspected it and he thought, well, that's a decent shoe. It's a nice shoe, but I don't know if I want it. There's a whole lot of other shoes in the store. So he, he put the shoe down and walked away from it. And as he walked away from this one particular shoe that he was sort of thinking about buying, but he wasn't actually sure, he said another man came up behind him and picked up the exact same shoe off of the rack. <laughs> so what goes through Adam's mind when that happens? Ah, it's desire. The other man, and I don't know why he picked up the shoe, but maybe he saw Adam looking at it. And so he desired what he thought Adam desired. But now that Adam sees that this other man desires this shoe as well, what happens in Adam's mind? Ah, uh, well, he desires the shoe even more. The desire sees the desire in another. The desire is imitated. Okay? And then he imitates that desire and desire increase. So you can sort of think of, of desire as, you know, my desire picks up and then, when you see that desire, okay, it raises and even goes a little further. And, and desire just sort of feeds off of each other so that what you and I desire, we see that desire, desires, desire, uh, desire in, in, in a sense. And so uh, anyway, desire is, uh, you see it, you, it's, I'm talking about sort of con, um, convoluted terms, I suppose, but you understand it. You see it all the time, okay? You desire something because you see others desire it. And that makes it even more desirable, especially when they desire. And especially, okay, this is getting into the third term, imitation, desire. Uh, this, what, what really happens with desire is when there is a limited supply. Uh, even when there's not a limited supply. Uh, the third word, by the way, is rivalry. Okay, when there is something that you and I both desire, and both of us cannot have it, okay, the same promotion, the same woman, the same house, the same car, the same pair of shoes even, okay? When that happens, we enter into rivalry, into a competition to see who's going to get it. Maybe you're going to get it, maybe I'm going to get it, but we are going to compete somehow. We're going to enter into maybe a small, minor rivalry relationship to see who comes out on top and gets that pair of shoes. So going back to Adam Erickson's example from the shoe store, uh, he saw this other man pick up the shoes. And in his mind, he's thinking, you know, that shoe, those shoes really were good. And yes, there's another pair of shoes up there on the wall, in the box, exactly the same brand, same color, everything. You go and look at it. Eh, it's got a little scuff on the heel. Someone must have carried this or wore this uh, pair of shoes around the house or, or, or around the uh, store and, and put those little, I want that pair of shoes that that man over there is looking at. So he waits and the man uh, puts the shoe down and Adam goes over there and immediately picks up that shoe, buys it, checks out of the store. Okay. He won that rivalry, that competition for that pair of shoes. But what if the man didn't put down the shoes and Adam went over there and said, uh, excuse me, hmm. I don't know if you noticed, but right before you picked up this shoe, I was looking at it. It was my shoe. You know, I really wanted to buy it. I, I shouldn't have put it down. I was planning on buying it, but but now you're holding it and it sort of looks like you're interested in buying it. So 
I, I, I wonder if you just, just give it to me and let me buy it. And maybe the man hands it over, maybe he doesn't. Either way, they are now in rivalry for this pair of shoes, okay? We see this, again, all over the place in Scripture. When um, Eve, when Eve decides to listen to the serpent and eat from the forbidden tree, she enters into a rivalry with God. Hmm. Later, in fact, after God comes, finds Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, then he tells the serpent what's going to happen to her, or him, and then God tells Eve what's going to happen to her. It's interesting, in Genesis 3.16, the last part of the verse, God tells Eve that your desire, oh, there's that word desire again, shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. What's going on there? God is saying, uh, hey, Adam and Eve, Back when I made you in Genesis 1, I told you that as my images on on earth, as my image on earth, uh, you were to rule together. You were to be co-rulers over this earth, to rule and reign side by side together. But now, God says in Genesis 3, because you've gone your own way, eaten the fruit that you were not supposed to eat, decided that you could judge between right and wrong, good and evil by yourself, there's going to be some consequences. One of them is that you will no longer be ruling together. You will be in rivalry with each other. That's this whole idea there. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is played out again over and over again in history. The woman, she wants to rule the household, the family, the relationship. She wants to. Uh, She has that desire to rule. God gave her that desire. It's a good desire, God-given desire. But she's in rivalry with her husband. And... Throughout time, because men typically are physically stronger, men rule over women. It's not the way it should be, but that's the way it has happened. That's the way it has occurred. There's a rivalry in the relationship about who gets to rule. Women want it and men want it, but because men are stronger, they typically win that relationship, that rivalry. Okay? Uh, We could go on and on about this. You see this all the time. (laughs) Just look at the news anytime after uh, Thanksgiving, Black Friday, Friday after Thanksgiving. Uh, the stores put on these sales. Big sc- flat screen TV, you know, plasma TV, 75% off, right? And uh, so a thousand people are waiting out at the store at two in the morning to, to, to get this TV, this seven, you know, this, this uh, flat screen TV. It's 75% off. And finally, when they open the doors and they all rush in, these thousand people, guess what? There's two TVs. <laughs> so what now what happens? Ah, there's desire. They all have desire and they're imitating each other's desire. And now because there's only two TVs, they are in rivalry with each other about who is going to get that TV. Now, what usually happens in a rivalry, in a competition, in that sort of situation when there's not enough to go around? Or even when there is, like with the shoes, with Adam in the store and there's There's shoes, but there's also plenty of other shoes on the wall. But that pair that they're looking at, that one's the best. What happens in that sort of situation? What happens when there's two of you trying to get the same position at work? What happens when there's two people trying to become president of the United States? What happens when there's two nations who want a particular seaport or particular tract of land or, uh, you know, a particular oil field? What happens when there's rivalry? You know what happens. This leads us to the fourth word, okay? First was imitation, okay? Desire, 
rivalry. Okay, now, fourth, violence. Violence is the result of rivalry. Now, it doesn't always start as violence, at least not physical violence. Typically, it, it could start as a verbal violence, you know, an insult, a tone of voice, a sneer, snide remark, something like that. Adam, uh, back in the shoe store, let's just say he goes up to that guy, and this didn't happen. He goes up to that guy and says, you know, uh, I saw those shoes first. I was here first. You know, I shouldn't have put them down. I really wanted to buy them. I know you're looking at them. I wonder if you'd just give them to me because I want to buy those shoes. All right. Fine, a legitimate request. Nothing wrong with that. But the guy then turns to Adam. What if he said and said, well, you <laughs> shouldn't have put him down then. Okay, there. He hasn't really insulted. He hasn't said anything. But his tone of voice is argumentative with Adam. And now, depending on how Adam responds, okay, that rivalry could quickly turn into violence. Let's say Adam doesn't like this man's tone of voice, and so he reaches over to grab the shoe back for himself. It's my shoe, right? What's the other guy going to do? Well, he's going to imitate this attack, in a sense, that he feels on his possession, this shoe, and maybe he's going to pull back on this shoe, okay? And maybe if this goes on, this little tug of war, eventually one's going to turn into a shove. Guy's going to get shoved to the ground. Now Adam gets up and he goes and tackles this guy and they knock over a whole, uh, uh, one of those things of shoes. The whole thing knocks over. Now you got the employees involved and then the police involved and the police show up and that's probably going to be the end of it. But what happens if the police don't show up quick enough? What happens if the guy pulls a knife or Adam pulls a gun, which I know he wouldn't do because Adam's a pacifist. <laughs> uh, if he ever listens to this, uh, he'll get a, a crack out of this about him pulling a gun on somebody. But, um, you know, this is, it wouldn't ever happen with Adam and a shoe, but we see this. Black Friday, two TVs, thousands of people, rivalry. You hear it on the news, you see it on the news, on the, on the TV news, the nightly news. Every, every year, someone gets shot, someone gets stabbed because of a pair of shoes or a Tickle Me Elmo uh, or a TV or a, a computer or whatever it is, a PlayStation 4, who knows, right? This is what happens when rivalry occurs and people do not learn to solve this rivalry in a peaceful manner. It results in violence, not just on an interpersonal relationship, but economics, politics, right? It happens all the time. Look, look even with little children, you've seen this happen. If not, you've seen it happen enough to know, like on a, on a playground or in a, a church nursery or something, you put two kids uh, in a room filled with a hundred toys, give them about, I don't know, 20 minutes. And pretty soon they will be fighting over the exact same toy. One of them's hitting the other one on a head, engaging in violent behavior uh, against the other two-year-old in the room. Why? Well, imitation. They go into the room, all the toys all over the place. One heads that way, and one heads that way. Fine. Well, one picks up a toy, and he plays with it a little bit, and he thinks, eh, it's okay. Yeah, he drops it, sets it down. But he doesn't know that the other kid in the room, the other child in the room, has been watching him, and as soon as he puts down that toy, the other kid comes over and picks it up. Ah, now what happens? <laughs> Why does he pick it up? Imitation. Maybe he thinks it looks fun. Now the first kid who dropped the toy realizes... What a great toy that is that he just let go. And now this other child is playing with it. So he goes back 
And just like Adam trying to get the shoe from the other guy in the shoe store, he grabs the toy from the two-year-old. The other two-year-old grabs back, and pretty soon, before you know it, there's biting and hitting and screaming and kicking and one kid bonking the other kid on the head with the toy. <laughs> Violence, even as young as two years old, that comes from rivalry. Watch the news. Watch your interactions with your neighbors, with your people at work, with coworkers, with your spouse, with your children, with your parents. Okay, You are going to see this all the time. And here's the thing with rivalry. I'm sorry. Here's the thing with violence. It always escalates. Always. Unless, unless there's something to step in and stop the escalation. A police force, an outside party to come in separate the two of you, you know, one kid goes to that corner, one kid go, goes to that corner, okay? The violence tends to escalate until there's a winner and a loser or until both parties are horribly injured. So uh, in children, they, you know, they're maybe not going to hurt each other too much, but in adult settings, uh, countries go to war with each other. Uh, towns and communities are bombed and burned. Uh, people are murdered, okay? Uh, children are murdered and burned even, okay? This is what often happens it starts off with a little uh, snide remark. Didn't like the tone of voice. Turns into a slap. Turns into a punch. Turns into a shove. Turns into a tackle. Turns into a stab. Turns into a shooting. Now the person, the family member whose uh, son was just shot, you know, a, a brother goes and he kills uh, the, the person who did the shooting plus that man's wife. Now their family comes and they want to kill the entire family of the, you're right, and this is how it goes. Just think Hatfields and McCoys. Go back and look at the history of that. There's one even a better example, World War I and World War II. Go back and look at the history of this. We have this assassination attempt, right, on, what is that, Duke Ferdinand or someone like that. I can't remember who it is exactly. Um, I don't remember all the details, but I just remember reading, watching a little bit about this recently, just thinking, World War I began on such the dumbest thing. These two these nations were in conflict, rivalry with each other, each fighting for the same thing, power, prestige, glory, honor, all the things that nations fight for. And um, there was an insult traded and then an assassination attempt. And before you know it, the whole world has fallen into war. And believe it or not, World War II followed as a result of World War I. It really was just sort of one big long war with, with uh, some years in between. Uh, Adolf Hitler was a soldier during World War I. He didn't like how the soldiers, how Germans were treated after they lost World War I. And so he set out in rivalry with the rest of the world to rule and dominate them and, and uh, payback, retaliate, in a sense. It was just a continuation of the rivalry and the violence that began in World War I. So you think about this, World War I, World War II, everything that happened, a result of some insignificant, relatively insignificant slight insult that happened way back when, okay? And this happens to us all the time. Now, here's the thing, okay? Here's the thing about violence. Let's say the person you are engaged in violence with is someone you don't actually want to be in violent uh, relationship with. You don't want to hurt them, and you know deep in your heart somewhere that they don't want to hurt you. It's your spouse, your wife, your husband. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's one of your parents. Okay, but uh, imitation, okay, led to desire, led to rivalry, and now you're in a heated argument. Words are flying, insults are flying, tempers are flaring with this person you're angry with. 
How are you going to stop this? You know from experience, okay, that this can escalate out of control very quickly. Dishes can get thrown, vases can get thrown, people can get hurt, people can go to the hospital. Maybe not in your personal experience, but you heard about it from the family down the street, heard about it on the news. So you don't want that to happen to the person that you love. Maybe it's a business partner. You need them and they need you, but you are in rivalry with each other. How are you going to solve this? Maybe it's two nations. We're allies. Uh, We can't go to war with each other. We're not going to put sanctions on each other, but we're in rivalry with each other. What are we going to do about this? Okay, so you have violence, this escalation of violence. It's threatening to get out of control, and you need a way out. You need a way to stop the escalation. What are you going to do? Well, this gets us to the fifth and final word of the theory of everything. Okay? First was imitation. All right? Second was desire. Third, rivalry. Fourth, violence. Fifth, scapegoating. Scapegoating is the key, the secret, the mechanism. Rene Girard calls it the scapegoat mechanism. It, uh, it is the release valve from the escalation of violence, okay? Uh, you might recognize scapegoating. Yeah, it was one of the sacrifices mentioned in Leviticus, Leviticus 17, uh, that's mentioned in other places as well. Uh, and uh, here's the thing about scapegoating. Well, let me just explain what it is first. We're not talking about scapegoating, going out and getting a goat and uh, you know, laying hands on it, putting your sins on it, and sending it out into the wilderness. No, scapegoating is when you or and a loved one are in violent, a violent rivalry with each other. It's escalating out of control. And you know in your heart and your mind that, that this can't go on. Something's got to stop. So here's what happens. It's usually not something you, uh, a conscious decision. It's something you typically do non-consciously, below the level of consciousness. But you start looking around for a scapegoat, okay? And you realize that the two of you who were in battle with each other, who were in conflict with each other, you can come together in peace and unity and love and friendship and business partnerships that are beneficial to all, okay? Again, if you turn your violence on an outside third party. So you start fishing around, you start looking around. And typically what happens is you pick somebody who's sort of an innocent bystander. They're just wandering by. They probably had absolutely nothing or at least very little to do with the situation, the violent, the the rivalry, rivalrous relationship you find yourself in. But uh, you start talking bad about them to this person that you are in conflict with. And you start to blame this outside third party for the problems that you're facing in, in this relationship. And, uh, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're probably going to be different from you. They're going to be a, a different race, a different a religion, a different uh, political persuasion. You know, if you're a Republican, they're a Democrat or vice versa. Uh, maybe they're of a different country. Maybe they're of a different age. Maybe a, a different socioeconomic class. Uh, you're going to point the finger at the 99% or you're going to point the finger at the 1%. You're going to... Um, point the finger at another race or, or you know, another, uh, maybe a woman or a man. Oftentimes they will have some sort of physical deformity. Okay. And on and on. It doesn't really matter who it is, but you are going to subconsciously find common ground with 
your current enemy, who you don't want to be your enemy, by redirecting your rivalry, redirecting your violence on an outsider, on an innocent third-party bystander. Okay, And guess what? The person you are in rivalry with joins you in this because they want the same thing you want, and now you're imitating each other Okay, in turning this violence on somebody else. And you cast them out. You dehumanize them. You reject them. You despise them. You judge them. You accuse them. Maybe you even somehow inflict violence on them. Maybe you even work to kill them. And okay, you, you're not the one, you know, pulling out the gun and pulling the trigger, but maybe you are the one calling for the country to drop bombs on them or go to war with them or saying, oh, they should just go to hell or, or, or go to prison or whatever the case may be. Okay. Scapegoating. That's how scapegoating works. And it's not just between two people, as I indicated, it can be between business partners you know, you need to be have this business relationship and things aren't going the way you planned or hoped and, and there's a rivalry beginning to develop, but you can come together in unity with your business partner by finding another business or another group of people that are hindering your business. At least that's the way it appears to be. And you blame them for everything that is going wrong in your business uh, or with, between countries as well. Even within a country, if there is rivalry inside a country, uh, it is often helpful to find a people group, maybe a minority that's in the country, and blame them for everything. Here in the United States, (laughs) take your pick. (laughs) We have, uh, let's see, Muslim terrorists, uh, radical Muslim terrorists. I've heard that thrown around a lot. They are a popular scapegoat today. They're responsible for all the problems we're facing. Uh, in some Christian circles, I've heard uh, LGBT people blamed for all the problems that are happening in our country. Uh, Hitler, of course, you remember, he blamed the Jews, everything that happened from that. Jews were the scapegoats there. Uh, oh, here's one. Uh, illegal immigrants in the United States. They're responsible for everything wrong with our country. They're draining the system of income. Okay. And you know, the truth is, Muslims, immigrants, okay, they're not faultless, all right? (laughs) Terrorists do bad things, right? So they're not faultless, they're not innocent. It's just that they're not exactly guilty of everything that we blame them for. They're not responsible for everything that we lay on their shoulders, that we accuse them of. Uh, and so we dehumanize them, we cast them out, we disparage them, we, 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 we might even direct violence at them. And this behavior allows our violence to get redirected away from the person we need the relationship with and toward somebody else, some random person or group of people. And here's the thing about scapegoating. It works. Okay? It does work. I almost hate telling you this because... Uh, uh, well, confession time, <laughs> uh, personal confession time. Since I've been studying this for the last several years or so, uh, there have been a couple of times in my marriage when I am at war, <laughs> having an argument with my wife, my beautiful wife, Wendy. We are in disagreement. We're in rivalry with each other. We cannot decide, cannot come to agreement on something we should be doing. And so we're in an argument. And I knowing what I know about the scapegoat mechanism, have 
Rather than non-consciously or subconsciously start looking around for a scapegoat, I have actively, consciously done so. Knowing that I could use a scapegoat, maybe it's our neighbor, maybe it's a certain uh, person in politics, maybe it is uh, a relative, maybe, who knows who it might be, okay, someone at work. And I know that by bringing up this scapegoat, I can redirect our anger at each other, and then together, we can come together and direct our anger at this other person. And in the times I've done this, it has worked like a charm, okay? Because scapegoating works. Now, the thing is, and I'm going to be talking about this a lot more in days and months and years ahead on my redeeminggod.com website and the uh, theology courses that I will be teaching there, in my one-verse podcast as I teach through Scripture, one verse at a time, okay, in my books and my writing. The thing is, is scapegoating is probably the major sin in Scripture. When Scripture talks about sin, it very often has this scapegoat mechanism in view. Okay? Um, Boy, we see it in Genesis 3. It begins with blame, you know, Adam blaming Eve, Eve blaming the serpent, and Adam blaming God. Uh, we, we see it with Cain and Abel. It's one of the reasons that Cain kills Abel. We see it later in Genesis chapter 4 with Lamech. You know, um, uh, if Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech is avenged 77 times. That's the escalation of violence, but they're scapegoating, you're passing blame. We see it with the whole sacrificial system. The whole sacrificial system is, a, is scapegoating writ, written large. We see it with the Canaanites uh, in Joshua and Judges. Uh, they are a um, scapegoated people. We see it, um, boy, all the way through the Old Testament. Moving into the New Testament, though, Jesus came to reveal scapegoating. Over and over and over again in the Gospels, uh, Jesus is coming on the side of the scapegoat victims and refusing to get involved. In fact, refusing to take the sides of the people uh, doing the scapegoating, and instead, Jesus takes the side of the scapegoats. This is why Jesus is a friend of tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. Why? Because back then, tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes were the scapegoats. This is why Jesus goes and heals demon-possessed people, because demon possession very often, in fact, almost always in the Gospels, is related or identified with people who are typically scapegoats in a society, in a culture, in a town. Um, that's why when Jesus casts out the, 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 the legion of demons from the, the Gadarene demoniac, this guy who has all these demons in him, the town people are not that happy about it. Why? Why would they not be happy about this? Why? Because he is a perpetual scapegoat. He has been scapegoated so many times. That's why he has a legion of demons. That's what the legion of demons re- uh, uh, represents. And so when he's healed and in his right mind, the people are upset. They have now lost their peacemaking ability in town. They can no longer blame him for everything, right? Uh, because he's sane. He's healthy. He's of his, in his right mind. Um, oh, the woman caught in adultery. Perfect scapegoat. Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, religious leaders always at war, you know, arguing rivalry with each other. But now they can come together with a common purpose, common enemy, who is Jesus. And they're going to do it, though, sort of in a roundabout way and scapegoat this poor woman caught in adultery. 
And so Jesus comes along and says, eh, I'm not taking sides here, at least between you guys. I'm going to side with the woman. He gets down there in the dirt with her, writes in the dirt, and says to them, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. He sides with the scapegoat victim. Now, ultimately and finally, Jesus is the perfect example of the scapegoat. I've told you before, you know, the, the best scapegoat is one who is somewhat guilty. We see what he's done, and because it's clearly obvious that they've done bad things, well, then we are able to justify our accusations and judgments, condemnation of them, because they clearly are guilty. Uh, the Muslim terrorists clearly have done some horrible bad things, and so we are able to then lay all sorts of blame on them and all Muslims in general, for things that they have nothing whatsoever to do with. Okay, uh, so, um, but Jesus, when he is scapegoated, well, they try to lay blame on him. They try to accuse him of all sorts of things, but none of it sticks. Uh, none of it is found out to be true. And it's interesting in the Gospels, who are the people scapegoating Jesus? Well, <laughs> it's two groups that are typically at war with each other, but who need each other. In the Gospels, it's the political leaders of the Roman Empire on one side, and the religious leaders on the other. Typically, politics and religion, they're at war with each other, fighting for power and for the lives and hearts and minds and money of people. But when Jesus comes along, Jesus threatens both, because both of those powers are uh, built upon scapegoating, the scapegoat mechanism on victimization. Okay? And Jesus wants to undo all that. He is not going to participate in that game, and this is a threat to their power. And so what do they do, the political power and the religious power? They unite together <laughs> and make a scapegoat out of Jesus. They kill him. They crucify him. Scapegoat Jesus. And that is one of the supreme revelations of the crucifixion. That's why Paul says later that he preaches Christ and him crucified. Why? Because the revelation of Jesus on the cross through his crucifixion is one of the most important revelations that occurs in the Bible, in the Gospels, and through the crucifixion of Jesus. All right? Now here's the thing. Jesus, of course, he, he dies on the cross, and then he rises from the dead three days later. Now put yourself in the shoes of Jesus and put yourself uh, in the shoes of any uh, Hollywood movie director Okay, there's a guy, and he has been unjustly accused and condemned, tortured and killed, right, by people that really don't deserve his good behavior. And uh, by who knows what happens, some sort of crazy miracle, this guy rises from the dead. Now, this is a movie, a Hollywood movie, or your very own life, how you live, how I live, how we all live. What do you do? You've been unjustly accused, condemned, tortured and killed, and now you are back from the dead. What is it you're going to do? Ah, retaliation, revenge, bloodshed, fire, sword, right? Drop the bombs, annihilation. This is what will happen. But when Jesus comes back, how does he come back? It's with love and forgiveness and reconciliation. And Jesus says, basically, in so many words, but he says, the reason I died is to show you what you have been doing forever and ever, the scapegoat mechanism, putting people to death, often in God's name, all right, for the sake of peace. And peace is good. Peace is a good desire. But Jesus says, look, 
I died. I became your scapegoat to reveal this to you so that I could expose it and crucify it, put it to death on the cross, and in the process, show you a better way. Remember I told you, scapegoat mechanism, it works. (laughs) That's why we do it. But Jesus says, guess what? There's another way. There's another way out. And it also works. What's this other way? It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. When you insult me, I don't have to imitate and insult you back. I can just forgive. When I hurt you, you don't have to enter into the rivalry and imitate how I hurt you and hurt me back with a little extra force, right? Because the violence always escalates. No, you can forgive. Just like Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, Jesus says from the cross. That's how we can escape the escalation of violence. That cycle of violence that has no end except more and more violence. Violence always <laughs> leads to more violence. Violence breeds violence. Okay, uh, We think that we will use the violence to create peace, but we don't. We just create more violence. And so Jesus says, stop, stop. I died to show this to you that you create victims, you make victims, you, you make scapegoats as a way to create peace. But there's another way of peace, the way of Jesus, which is the way of forgiveness. And here's the thing. I know forgiveness is tough. Forgiveness hurts. In fact, forgiveness feels like dying, doesn't it? Oh, but you don't know what he did to me. No, I, I don't. I can't just let it go. I get that. You can't. But you can forgive. What, I'm just supposed to forgive? Yes, <laughs> that's what Jesus did. Okay, now, having said that, I want to make sure forgiveness is not forgetting, okay? Uh, you don't necessarily need to go back to the way things were. It's very important to understand. There are consequences <laughs> for actions and decisions. God doesn't do away with the consequences. He forgives us, but there are still consequences. Very important to remember that. Understand that if you're in an abusive relationship, you can forgive, but you do not need to stay in that abusive relationship. Get out. (laughs) Forgive and get out. (laughs) Um, But uh, look, forgiveness is the key. You do not need to continue the escalation of violence, that cycle of violence. You do not need to redirect that violence toward an innocent outside scapegoat. Okay, that will create peace, but it's only going to be a temporary peace because you never dealt with the underlying issue, right? Uh, The better way, the proper way, from what Jesus says, the only way is the way of forgiveness and of love as we see done in Jesus Christ. So those are the five words, imitation, desire, rivalry, violence, and scapegoating, okay? And those five words provide you with a theory of everything. Start watching it. Start watching your own life. Start watching your relationships. Start watching uh, the news. Start watching politics. Open up a magazine and start reading the articles, looking at the uh, the advertisements. Uh, watch uh, how nation interacts with nation. Watch how uh, 
businesses interact with each other. And you're going to see those five things all over the place, working behind the scenes, okay, to move us forward and create this false temporary peace. And then realize that you do not need to fall into that. Imitate, yes, imitate Jesus, okay? Desire, yes, desire to be like Jesus. But rivalry, no, leave that behind. You don't need to be in rivalry with anybody, with God, with Jesus, anybody. You're your own unique person. And violence, definitely not. There's a a bitter way, a different way out. So typically you're going to find yourself in an escalation of violence, one of those situations. Stop, recognize what's going on, Refuse to scapegoat, refuse to imitate, refuse to retaliate, and instead imitate Jesus in offering forgiveness. Okay? When we do this, we, like Jesus, are showing the world a better way. There is a way. It doesn't need to lead to death and destruction. There's a way of love and reconciliation and redemption. And who knows? (laughs) Maybe as we reveal this as individuals in our lives, the way Jesus did, businesses might notice and say, oh, that's a better way. Maybe countries will notice. Say, wow, we don't have to go to war with them. We can forgive. Who knows? I don't know if any of that's possible. I'd like to think it is. Because the way of Jesus is better than anything that this world has to offer. But whether or not that ever happens, you, as a follower of Jesus, can begin to live this way, the way of forgiveness, in your life, right here, right now, today, with the people around you on every side. Sounds good? Look, it's a challenge, it's difficult, difficult for me. But I hope this has been a, a bit of a useful introduction to what's going on in the world around you. And I hope that what you've learned here is going to help you understand Scripture, understand yourself, understand what's going on in the world with politics and economics and business and finance and Black Friday and with your neighbors and with your in-laws and at work and everything else, okay? And then I hope that just you'll move on from understanding to action, and especially actions that look like Jesus, actions of love, grace, mercy, and especially forgiveness. So that's it. Listen, uh, if this has been helpful for you, I would love some uh, interaction from it. You can do so. Leave a comment below. Uh, Reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, Come visit my blog, redeeminggod.com. Leave a comment there. Use a contact form. And again, I'm going to be talking a lot about this in my, uh, not this particular topic, but uh, it it will pop up from time to time as I teach in my One Verse podcast or as I teach my Bible and theology courses at redeeminggod.com. If you want to sign up for those courses, you can do that. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash register, uh, redeeminggod.com slash register, and you can access the first three or four lessons from each course absolutely for free. Just see if they're for you or not. And if you become a member of redeeminggod.com, then uh, you get these courses for free. They're typically, I sell them for $300, $299 actually. But uh, by becoming a member of redeeminggod.com, you get access to the courses for free. And um, so that's that's quite a deal. But uh, I'll, I'll be talking a lot more about this uh, here and there as I work my way through these Bible and theology courses. Anyway, 
Thank you so much. I hope you found this helpful. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching, if that was uh, how you saw this or heard this. And I really, really do hope that it will change your outlook on everything in life the way it has done for me. All right. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye.